Hi, and welcome to Snooze Elevate podcast. My name is Jim Parker. I'm editor of Hospice News. And joining me today is Dr. Christopher Kerr, CEO and Chief Medical Officer of Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo. Dr. Kerr has been spearheading research that examines the death experience from the perspective of the patient. The research has uncovered previously unrecognized aspects of the dying process, including vivid dreams that feature the patient's deceased loved ones. A body of work is growing around this research, including Dr. Kerr's book, Death is But a Dream, a TEDx Buffalo talk with more than 3.2 million YouTube views, an appearance in the Netflix documentary series, Surviving Death, and a public television documentary, also titled Death is But a Dream. Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo is based in New York State. It's a nonprofit organization that serves more than 1,000 patients and families daily. Dr. Kerr, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Jim. So first, I wondered if you could just introduce our listeners to Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo, the services that you provide, the size of the organization, and the types of the communities that you serve. Sure. You know, we're one of the early pioneering hospices that started pre-benefit. So we're fortunate to have like just 43, 44 years, pretty entrenched with our community. We're a certificate of need. We serve 1,100 patients a day. We're an interesting hospice in that our palliative care census is actually bigger than our hospice census. So of that 1,100, about 450 is on the hospice side. We have an interesting palliative care program in that it's got multiple layers to it. It's got a payer-sponsored dimension, an ACO, Medicare demonstration, and also aligned with a, a private practice. We also have a large pediatric program that serves about 120 children per day, and we employ about 450 individuals. Excellent. Thank you. For those who maybe haven't seen our coverage of the research you're doing, can you describe that work? Sure. It was really began, oh boy, 10, 12 years ago. When I first came to hospice in 99, I really wasn't trained per se to pay attention to the kind of subjective elements in the dying process. And it was really my colleagues in nursing, social work, pastoral care, who really gradually made me more attuned to the fact that people were having these kind of inner processes. So instead of looking at dying as organ failure or physical decline, look at it more at the experiential side. So what is the patient actually experiencing? And when you do that, surprisingly, um, these kind of subjective events of dreams or visions are very, very common. There's nothing new in this. It's always been described. But what we did then is, is in, in, in a frustrated effort in trying to teach this, the response we often got back from students, residents was, you know, there's no evidence for this. And, of course, there was an abundance of evidence in the form of, in the humanities, the form of surveys, anecdotal stories, but there wasn't any quantifiable evidence. And that's really what was kind of needed to uh, place this into a more caregiving context. Thank you. And uh, can you share some of the key findings uh, of your research? Sure. Our original study, we published eight manuscripts on the topic to date. In the first one, what we did is we surveyed patients using a validated tool. These are university-approved studies, by the way, so the patients have to sign consent, be witnessed, and we have to rule out for confusional states. We followed patients days, weeks, sometimes months before death to change over time. And um, what we found was that the vast majority of 
patients reported at least having one event, roughly 88%. It was very interesting. We found that the frequency and intensity of these experiences increased as patients got towards death. When we looked at realism um, on a 0 to 10 scale, with 10 being the most realistic, uh, the vast majority picked the number 10. In fact, one of the things we hear frequently is I don't normally dream or remember my dreams, and this was different. This was essentially virtual for them. When we looked at content, there were a number of striking themes. Travel was common. Pets were common. But most common was this idea of reuniting or experiencing the presence or love of somebody who was important in their life. And when we looked at comfort relative to content, so what you saw, what comfort level did it give you, it turns out seeing the deceased was provided the most comfort. When you put it all together, it gets really interesting in that an individual, as they approach death, most commonly experiences this increase in frequency of these events and most commonly sees the ones that they loved who have passed, and this is associated with the highest level of comfort. And what seems to happen is the overall take home is that these are very life-affirming, positive, comforting experiences that, that invalidate having lived, but also seem to lessen the fear of death. We've looked at this process of dying as a post-traumatic event. In other words, another a negative experience from which one can grow from. And in fact, that's what we're seeing. So even up until the last days of life, there seems to be this dimensionality to dying that includes gaining insight, adapting, understanding, that sort of thing. So it really inverts our kind of understanding of dying as a simple lessening. And that while somebody's physically declining, they may be very spiritually or psychologically alive. And I know some of this research has been replicated nationally and internationally. I'm wondering if you've been in touch with any of the organizations that have also started to look into this. Yeah, uh, yes. Some of it's unpublished. Some of it is published. And essentially, there's 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 you know a group in Japan, for example, that found similar numbers. So there's there seems to be a lot of parallel. Again, what we did wasn't unique. It's all it's always been reported. Most of it, though, was kind of done not necessarily from the perspective of the patient, so more survey-based. But, yeah, it is. there seems to be a similarity across cultures. Some of the very early work actually done on this was done also in India and compared the United States and India and found very similar numbers. And, of course, you know, for many of these countries around the world, this is actually part of their cultural identity, the way they maintain connectivity to their ancestors and that sort of thing. And from the providers or the research you have seen from other organizations, it sounds like the answer to this is yes. But just in case, have their findings been consistent with yours? Were there any surprises? No, not really. We've all been saying the same thing, which is kind of very interesting, actually, because it basically just reaffirms what's always been said. This goes back many, many, many decades in terms of people who have looked at this. So what's really interesting is where we put more structure to it, it's really just confirmed or reaffirmed what people reported more anecdotally. How did you come to be involved in the Netflix documentary series, uh, Surviving Death? Oh, it was interesting. They they had called. Originally, we were kind of reassured that it, it wasn't going to be have a paranormal or afterlife focus, for, but that's how it kind of came out. 
for us, it's very, very important that this not be used as a keyhole into something else, be it religious, paranormal, afterlife, etc. If people want to make those leaps, that's great. But for us, it's been very, very important to protect the perspective of the patient. And we just want to look at dying as a mystery to itself. And we view our research as simply translating the words and experience of the patients. The Netflix documentary honored our section of that of the docu-series in episode five, but it was surrounded by a lot of other stuff, which again is fine. But for us, we're really, we're not interested. We're less interested in editorializing or extrapolating. Mm-hmm. And could you talk a little bit about the PBS documentary and how that came to be? Yeah, this is a great story. So none of this work was meant for a larger audience. Again, in probably 2010, 2009, I'd come to have a, such great appreciation for the fact that this had clinical worth and was so obviously therapeutic to the patients as well as their families that it needed to be understood clinically. So in frust- my, my frustration in trying to teach this to the medical side of events, what we did is we started to film patients. Because if I tell you, for example, you know, patients at the end of life are having these experiences, a lot of people assume they're feeble-minded, currently vulnerable, or weakened. And what I want people to understand is they look and sound like us. And quite truthfully, the research can never do justice to the patients talking themselves. So anyways, we started to film, but it was for a medical audience, just so I could show at Grand Rounds. See, here's them talking. And of course, this became part of uh, that early film that was just done with a handheld camcorder thing is now part of this larger TBS World documentary. And really what happened was the it seeped from the medical community who essentially didn't never responded much to our work. It got into the popular press and ended up going around the world. So it was in the time New York Times, the Post, the Atlantic, BBC, and multiple lead media platforms from around the world, China, Korea, England, wherever. So, and that's a really interesting facet of the story is that the incongruity between the medical community who views this with one level of regard and the non-medical people who are the recipients of our care who view it as something very different. And I think what that overall says is it's a distinction between viewing dying as a, as a sterile medical organ-based phenomena versus one that's actually much more of a human experience. And the people who are receiving our care clearly value the latter. If people are interested in seeing the film, how can they access it? On April 15th, 16th, it's on PBS World, so just their, their local public television. But if you go to the World Channel, also it'll be available digitally. I see. Thank you. Yeah. And could you expound a little bit on why you think the medical community was less responsive to this work than, you know, the general public? Well, I I think of those of us who work on uh, in hospice, uh, you know, essentially we exist because of a medical culture that tends to kind of deny certain elements of dying or or one-dimensional in their focus on, on treatment. And so I think that clearly in the Western world, in our era, medical care has been focused on the interventional aspects 
of sickness, you know, but not necessarily to comfort always. And I think more so it's fragmented. So I think that a lot of medical intervention is kind of like spot welding. They come in on a subspecialty or depending on your setting, the hospital setting versus outpatient setting. So I, I just think that it's easier to become oblivious to the totality of dying and to the fact that it's a closing of a life rather than a failing part. So I think that there's that there's an ever-growing sterility in the relationship between modern medicine and the person in the bed when treatment no longer is effective. And, you know, you, you metaphorically fall off this cliff of care where I ironically you probably need it the most, but you're going to receive it the least unless you're into the care of a hospice provider. So, yeah, I just think there's a failure to recognize and it's very possible to go through medical school training and practice and not really have a lot of proximity to the dying process. You will have patients that die. And it kind of explains the difference in the receptivity of our work between nurses and doctors. So nurses most often know exactly what we're talking about. They've seen it. They've been at the bedside. So I think it's a difference between treating a patient and knowing a person. And I think there's less of the latter in modern medicine, which kind of obscures seeing the patient. I mean, if you're uncomfortable or less aware of of the dying process, you're certainly not going to understand the experiencing of it from the patient's perspective. So there just seems to be less awareness of it. And and, and that's true, I think, of all kind of psycho-spiritual elements of illness. You know, our care is much more transactional based and doesn't leave a lot of space for these richer, uh, very, very important aspects to living with disease or life. So can we talk a little bit about how the research may have influenced your approach to patient care or communication with patients and families? Oh, boy, it's, that's hard to capture. I, you know, it, it's I'd like to think it's made me a, a better doctor. It is certainly brought the original reason you go into medical school is you have good instincts and impulses, but it has to be ultimately it has to be experienced at a human level. Otherwise, you're just involved in process. And so having to stop, be present, engage with somebody at this level to understand what they're actually experiencing, you know, it allows for the sort of connectivity that, that brings it back to why you first walked in those doors. And it's affirming. I think it's actually a, a hopeful story underneath all of this. And it's, it becomes rewarding. So much of medicine for so many practitioners isn't rewarding by every survey and study. The human element element is getting squeezed out of it. And when you do this sort of work, it brings it back to uh, something better. And I think not only does it become less about stress and process, but it becomes about something that's enriching the more art aspect of, of what we do is in addition to the science. So, uh, yeah, it, it changes you a lot, I think, having done this. And, yeah, it's a lot more meaningful. Thank you. And if uh, you don't mind my switching gears a little bit, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how hospice and palliative care Buffalo has fared during the pandemic. We're a year into the pandemic. I know you expanded your inpatient capacity early on. You know, how has the pandemic affected your organization thus far? You know, I, I think you've done a number of things. I think it was a very 
low point in the fall. I think people were not only struggling with the, their personal aspects and consequences of COVID, but they were also struggling professionally. The thing I heard the most was a feeling of helplessness. They knew their colleagues were struggling. The work had gotten harder. When people who care for dying patients don't normally complain, but are now complaining, you left them. And they, it was harder. I think that the cumulative burden in the homes that they were caring for patients was harder. People were struggling. I think the big thing is they were trying to keep their loved ones out of institutional care to avoid COVID. And so helplessness is what I was feeling. We also had a census that was much higher than predicted. And then you add a lot of staff absences. So our staff to patient ratio was not where we wanted it to be and people were struggling. Uh, and then psychologically, they were fearful of COVID and what they were taking back to their families. So all that was, was difficult. Our nursing home census, the patterns of referral changed dramatically. Nursing home census dropped, obviously. And a lot of people were closing their doors. I thought we were doing great work by pulling people out of facilities where they couldn't be with their loved ones and putting them into the, our units. So we were reuniting people and families. So we were, we were doing, we were productive. We were serving many. And we had a real role to play, and we were very much embedded with our healthcare providers. I think what's happened is that we're in a much better spot. We're, we've come out of this well. There's a feeling of optimism. 60% of our staff are fully vaccinated. And I think, you know, we, we learned a lot. I think we, what I'm impressed with is what we were able to accomplish on the administrative side. It was fascinating. Uh, people just found innovative and creative ways to solve, collaborate, invent. And so we were able to do all sorts of exciting, exciting things. And one of the trends that has been on the minds of people in the hospice space is the rise of community-based palliative care. You alluded to this earlier. Your organization has a successful and financially sustainable program. Do you have any advice to other providers who would want to grow and find resources to support their own palliative care programs? Yeah, I could talk about 20 days on this, but I'll be brief. <laughs> you got to do it. Uh, I'm very fearful for our hospice movement for a few reasons. If You know, we're having trouble outside of community-based palliative care moving the length of stay needle. And mm-hmm. our mission needs to be to the model of care, not necessarily the program itself. If you're not doing palliative care, somebody else will be. And what we've seen in uh, on the for-profit side of palliative care is the patients come later into hospice, not earlier. So it's a, ineffective in some aspects as a palliative care model because they should be able to recognize and refer early. So there's competition. There's threat to your hospice, all of those things. I think in terms of getting to that point, I think it's important to remind people that palliative care grew from hospice in its best form. So we are the right ones to be doing it from a mission and quality standpoint. I think it means assuming some risk and getting out from under the benefit a bit and looking for supportive models, be them be their demonstration. I mean, the new margin is cost avoidance. So there's an abundance of goodwill. You know, we've done the right thing to do side argument for decades, but now the economic drivers are really looking at the most complex, serious ill patients, which are our patient population. So find your partners. And there's no one playbook, right? 
everything from ACOs to hospital systems that are looking at discharge rates, remission rates. There's all sorts of ways to do this, and it just it takes some inventiveness. Thank you. And uh, do you think that the pandemic has impacted demand for palliative care for, you know, the positive or the negative? I think it's associated to the good. I mean, it's affected to the good. I think we're, uh, I can give you lots of examples, but I, I think that there is a movement towards care being community-based. We're seeing a lot of differences in the uses of rehab, for example. The risk-benefit uh, late-stage treatment has changed because you don't want to complicate somebody, land them in a hospital. Yeah, I think, and I'm not so sure what's going to bounce back. Uh, obviously, some of it will. But what we've learned is we can do a lot of this in place in home. And it's basically aligned patients' wishes to remain at home to actual more towards the act, that actual reality happening. Offices are learning to man they can manage at a distance. And actually, I think another really neat outcome is that um, strengthening of some partnerships. So we have some, you know, we've had long-standing partnerships that are only stronger between our outpatient practitioner partners and ourselves. We've got multiple people, for example, embedded in the largest practice group in our area and who serve as a conduit from the outpatient setting to, to, to our programs. So, I, yeah, I think, I think it's all good. I, I really, truly do. I think the only thing that, that's negative is I think that this is being also seen as an opportunity uh, on the for-profit side, and I'm very concerned there's no, there's no guardrails for quality or anything like that. Thank you. And in regards to the partnerships you mentioned, who are some of those partners? Are these fellow providers, referring organizations, payers? What types of partnerships? They're all of the above. So we've had a Medicaid demonstration projects. We've got our own study Medicare population that we study uh, and refer. We have payer-sponsored referral systems from all of our three major payers. We've got a partnership with a large ACO, and we have a partnership with our largest practice group in Western New York, where we have embedded employees, we have analytics and referral triggers and all those sorts of things. So there's a feeder system into that. We're hoping to land one, one of the uh, demonstration projects, serious illness model. So those are, so there's about, I think there's five different programs. Anyway, I should just put a plug in. The pair-sponsored palliative care also extends to the pediatric side, which, you know, we need a hell of a lot more of. I see. Thank you. Uh, well, Dr. Kerr, those were all the questions I had for you this morning. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, no, thank you. Very much appreciate your time, as always, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Please take care. Thank you.